Would you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, the book of Ephesians chapter 2. And um, we started the book of Ephesians this last week in our reading plan through the New Testament, which you can find that plan on our website if you want to join in and read through the New Testament with us, continue to do that through the rest of the year. And Ephesians is a glorious book, and I love it so much. It was hard to choose just one passage, especially from chapters 1, 2, and 3, which are all amazing. And, uh, but the one we'll read this morning is so important and so foundational to our understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ and our salvation. And so Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, follow along with me as I read. And you were dead. In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Our Father... Make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh, Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. When I was a teenager, I went to a week-long summer camp with some of my friends who had invited me to come, and it was called World Changers. Some of you may be familiar with it. It's dedicated to serving people by working on their homes and and there was also singing and teaching and, and stuff like that. And one night, the speaker uh, had us split up into groups of five or six and, and share the story of when we were saved. And so I got into a group with my friends, and we brought our chairs into a tight little circle, and I leaned in and I said, what's saved? And everybody <laughs> laughed out loud, and I laughed too, but I wasn't really sure why. Uh, I had never heard of it. I had heard of heaven and, and hell and a little bit about Jesus, but never about being saved, at least that I could remember. And I, one of, I remember one of them, uh, uh, after laughing, saying, it's when you become a Christian. And that was pretty much the extent of their definition. And that's true, but what a minimal description. That, that's like someone asking you what the earth is, and you reply, oh, it's a ball. Our salvation is is immense. It is magnificent. It is drastic, a life-changing reality. And I remember two days after that first definition of being saved, a young man named Casey, a 20-something plumber with a goatee and tattoos, he gave me a fuller understanding of how and why I could be saved in Jesus Christ. And I was. And then 
That same man spent the next two years teaching me from the Bible all about what had happened to me and what was happening to me and what would happen to me and how and why it was all happening and what it meant for how I lived. And most importantly, he taught me the who behind it all. And I remember as a class clown and a football player, the double whammy of not caring about learning, it seemed like the first time I was ever excited to learn anything. And I was hungry for it, like, like spiritual food. And I remember feeling my life shift. Everything change during that time in my life. I shudder to think if I had just had the definition I got that first night I heard about salvation. Let me tell you one more story to explain my hopes for this message this morning. I heard this story uh, several years ago about a young woman named, in Chicago named Morgan Hill, who, and her mother had, had told her that, that she was adopted when she was young, but she waited until she graduated high school to tell her the rest of the story. That she, and she wept as she, as she told her that her biological mother had hidden her pregnancy and delivered quietly at home and tried to dispose of Morgan so that no one would know. She wrapped newborn Morgan in a towel and placed her in a garbage bag and double-knotted it and left her in a dumpster to die. And Morgan read through the articles that her mother had saved and she read about the construction worker who heard her and got help and the nurses that helped nurse her back to health and temporarily named her Mary Grace because she was a gift from God. And Morgan mentioned to the reporter how she tried to find these people to thank them, but she couldn't. And the reporter secretly tracked them down and brought them to Morgan's home for a surprise meeting. And the journalist asked Morgan what she would say to these people. And she said with her eyes brimming with tears, just honestly, thank you. I couldn't thank you enough for basically saving my life and giving me a chance to live this wonderful, beautiful life with the family that I have. And then she got the chance to do that. And it was beautiful, everyone weeping and hugging. And, and the journalist then uh, noted that, that at the end of the article, uh, she talked about what she called Morgan's missions, which was uh, since learning about all of this, that she, she's become outspoken about infant abandonment, trying to raise awareness of safe havens in every state in, in the hopes that the, her story will save lives. And Morgan was enjoying the benefits of her salvation from the dumpster all her life. But knowing the details, knowing how hopeless and disturbing her condition was, and knowing the, the, the care people had for her, it changed things for her. It, it, it stirred her emotions and increased her joy in her family. It motivated her to active gratitude, trying to seek out the people who helped her to thank them. It moved her to action for those in the same situation she was in. And my hope for this morning, really for the rest of our lives, is that like Morgan, we will see and know the details of our salvation and that we'll be affected and changed by the greatness of it. Hebrews 2 warns us from neglecting such a great salvation. And to not neglect it must mean in part that we know it as fully as we can and rejoice in it and thank God for it and live it out. Our text this morning is in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, is all about our great salvation. It, it's a before and after picture of the Christian that is both beautiful and intense. From this passage, I want us to see what our salvation is and how it happens, what it's like and what it brings about. 
And I'm going to be talking about a lot of incredible realities that I might normally preach a whole sermon on, just one, but I intentionally want you to see them as a whole to sense the glory and greatness of what Christ is telling us here. With that being said, let's jump in and look at what our salvation is. First and most, the most important thing I want us to see about our salvation is that it is, in its essence, union with Christ. This is the key that unlocks a biblical understanding of salvation. Notice from the passage how the Apostle Paul describes what has happened to us. Verse 5 says that God has made us alive. How? Together with Christ. And then he says, by grace you've been saved, as though this equating new life, he's equating this new life in Christ with salvation. And then he further elaborates in the next verse, God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. And then he says, this is so that God will eternally bestow kindness upon us in Christ. It almost seems like bad writing. It's so redundant. And if you think that's redundant, turn back to chapter 1. And I first discovered the radical importance of this when I was memorizing the first chapter of Ephesians, where Paul is enumerating the many incredible, glorious blessings of our salvation. And when I would recite it, I kept accidentally leaving out several of the in hymns or in Christ because it just seemed wrong to keep saying it so many times. It made the passage choppier. Look at, look at it with me. I'll show you what I mean. Chapter 1, verse 3, God blessed us in Christ. Verse 4, he chose us in him. Verse 5, we prede he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, he blessed us in the beloved. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. Verse 9, his purpose was set forth in Christ. Verse 10, to unite all things in him. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 12, the first to hope in Christ. Verse 13, in him you believed and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. There's even more, but, that, but I'll end there because you can see what I'm saying, right? This is so characteristic of Paul's writing that he doesn't want us to miss this fundamental, amazing reality that we are intimately, powerfully, personally, mysteriously joined with Jesus Christ. That Christ himself is our salvation. Amen. I think here especially, Paul is careful to emphasize the importance of our union with Christ because he's talking about the many great blessings and benefits of our salvation, and he doesn't want us to confuse these secondary blessings of salvation with the primary gift of salvation from which they all flow. In other words, we shouldn't objectify our salvation. We all know what we mean when we talk about objectification, like the objectification of women when men treat female persons as objects. And, and, how, and for their own pleasure, like how wrong that is to reduce a person's value to what they have to offer. But similarly, we shouldn't objectify our salvation because our salvation is a person. We can often be tempted to view our salvation as receiving something that Christ has acquired for us rather than receiving the living Christ himself. Our salvation is, is not an offer of depersonalized benefits, it is rather the offer of the very person of Jesus. It's not just a gift or a set of gifts to be acquired, but it is being united to the giver himself. And this is what makes Christianity so unique. All other religions and philosophies claim to show you the way. Jesus says he is the way. 
All others claim to tell you how to attain salvation of some kind. Jesus Christ is our salvation. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He also says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Salvation means we are miraculously united to the Savior. To embrace this amazing reality will mean we need to be humble enough to embrace mystery and a mystery that, can't be, that can be experienced, though, and described, but never fully explained or explained away. But I do want to offer one illustration that helps us understand it. Suppose you're at, at, at the St. Louis airport catching a plane to somewhere like Hawaii, and what relationship to the plane do you need? It doesn't help to be under the plane, inspired by it, hoping to fly one day to it doesn't help to be running after the plane as, far as, you, as fast as you can, following its path. No, of course you need to be in the plane. Because when that happens, what happens to the plane will happen to you. The question, did the plane get to Hawaii or did you get to Hawaii is, is wrapped up in that question, did the plane get to Hawaii? Similarly, what it means to be a Christian is one who is in Christ. So that's what's true of him is true of us. He died, we died. He was raised to life. We are raised to life and will be raised. He is righteous. We are counted righteous. He is loved. We are loved. This glorious reality is the heart of the gospel. But being in Christ is a dramatic and drastic change from where we were. That's the second thing I want you to notice about our salvation is that it's from death to life. That's extreme. That's an extreme and, and radical and big. Look at it. Verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Verse 3 says you were following the, the, the world and the devil. Verse 4. That you were by nature a child of wrath. Your very nature being so evil you deserve the wrath of the judge. And each one of these has this, a radical counterpoint in our salvation. Look at it. But we were dead. We were dead, but verse 4 says, what? We are alive. We were in bondage to the world, we're told, but, and the spirit of the world. But verse 6 says, we are raised and seated in the heavenly places. We were by nature children of wrath, but verse 7 says, we are to be recipients of eternal, gracious kindness in Christ. This is not a small change. This is not just a shift in viewpoints. You are not a Christian like you are a member of some group or a certain political party. Nor is salvation just a difference in quality. You're not just a little improved. You went from dead in sin to alive in Christ. From slavery in sin to freedom and authority in Christ. From children of wrath to recipients of eternal grace and kindness in Christ. Our salvation is something to marvel at. Christianity is not another book in the ever-growing self-improvement section. Jesus is not a guru. You, if you are a Christian, you are a miracle of such drastic proportions that what has happened to you will lead to the everlasting praise of the one who made it possible. Again, you were dead. You weren't just sick with sin. You were dead. You'll never understand how great your salvation is until you understand what you were saved from. 
Just like Morgan Hill appreciated her life in a greater way when she discovered how desperate her condition once was. What does it mean to be dead in sin? This is spiritual death he's talking about. But we can understand it by analogy to a physical dead body, which is powerless and unresponsive. So are we spiritually apart from Christ. We see both of these in scripture, our powerlessness and our unresponsiveness. First, our powerlessness is seen in verse 2, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Saying going with the flow of this world, because this world is not a lake, it's a river, and it flows toward destruction. And if you've ever been in a river and seen a dead fish, they just float with the current. The fish who are alive can swim upstream. This is why the author of Hebrews says we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. We have to look to Jesus in order to not drift away and float along with the course of this world. And, and we are dead and powerless without him. But this spiritual powerlessness is not inactivity. Spiritual powerlessness is manifested as living dominated by the flesh, right? Because if the spirit is dead, the flesh is in control. And the text says carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We all were powerless to submit to God and please God because we so strongly desired the deathly sin in our flesh. Our body and mind dominating our deeds because our souls were dead. But we're not only powerless in this death, dead bodies are also unresponsive, meaning they don't have senses that respond to stimuli such as taste and sight and hearing. So they can't taste and see that the Lord is good. As Psalm 34 says, they don't hunger for the bread of life or thirst for the living water or hear the voice of God. This is our devastating, seemingly hopeless condition without Christ. And this is why those words in this text, but God, are so very important. Because we are so helpless that we need God to intervene. And the amazing thing is, he does. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And when you read the Bible and you see how much it talks about the fragrance of offerings being either pleasing or displeasing to God, it's not unreasonable to speak of our deadness as a stench to him. God looked at my sinful, rotting corpse of a soul and he should have buried me. But instead, he turned to his son and said, I want that deplorable mess to have your life. And Christ took our death upon himself Amen. and offered his life as a fragrant offering. And our deadness died in his death. And his life spread to us like an infection that revives rather than destroys. And that's how we were saved. This means, of course, that salvation is life. Meaning we are no longer powerless 
and unresponsive. We have been revived to where we no longer drift like a dead fish, but swim against the current of this world. We are awakened to spiritual stimuli. We do taste and see that the Lord is good. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. We feast on the bread of life. We listen and hear the word of God as he speaks to us. We respond to his presence and, and, and guidance, and we really live and live abundantly. Salvation is spiritual life because our Savior lives and we are bound up with his own infinite life. This is what our salvation is and what it's like an incredible, beautiful, personal union with Jesus. And it's a radically drastic change from death and sin to life in Christ. Now I want us to look at how it happens because there's this beautiful chain of events here that I want you to see that God's love leads to God's grace, which leads to our faith, which leads to good works. God's love leads to God's grace, which leads to our faith, which leads to good works. That's how it happens. So let's take a little closer look. Verse four says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. So God made us alive in Christ because of his great love. And when we think about God's love, we think we know what it means because, you know, we love. And, and, but we really only do to an extent because when comparing his kind of love to most of our experiences of love, they do have a lot in common, but there's a lot of differences. Like when you think about a couple who's fallen in love, for instance, why do they love that person? What made them feel those feelings? They like the way they look or act or laugh or how they feel around them. They like that they like them, which makes them feel special. And this love can become glorious, but it's not free and spontaneous. It's, it isn't self-originating. It was drawn out by those qualities of that other person. In other words, it's a love that was earned. And this is the way most human beings love one another most of the time. The way God loves us, though, is radically different. God's love is self-originating. God's motivation to give the gift of his own son was not drawn out by the compelling beauty or worthiness of us. And it was not because we loved him. It overflows from the depths of God's own loving nature. It is uncaused, uninfluenced, unmotivated by anything outside of God. First John says God is love, meaning God, love isn't just something God does or has. It is who he is at the core of his being. He's like an ever overflowing fountain of love. And God's love for us is because of him, not because of us. It's not because we are good. And this means it's not the kind of love we usually want. Right? We want someone to say they love us because of some list of great qualities they see in us. We want love that makes much of us. We want love that we earned. But God's love is not that kind of love. It's not the kind we want. It's the kind we need. Or at least it's, the kind we, we, it's not the kind we think we want, but deep down, we do crave this unconditional love. Audrey and I watched this show on Netflix a while back where the main characters were tortured by self-loathing and taking it out on one another. And, and one of them asked her therapist who she was reluctant to see, and she, she finally broke down and said, asked the therapist if she believed in unconditional love. 
because she was fearing to show her true self, which she knew to be terrible, and lived in dread of rejection if she couldn't provide enough or, or give enough to make herself worthy of love to outweigh her bad. And I just wanted to jump into the TV, even though I, she's fictional, and I wanted to tell her, yes, unconditional love is real and it's available. Jesus proved it. He loved you knowing more about the depth of your unlovability than even you do. And he loved you with the kind of love you doubt can exist because he's a source of love like, like the sun is of light. But God's love for us is because God is good, not because we are. You don't earn it, you receive it. And this is because God's love leads to his grace. Twice, Paul says in this passage, by grace you have been saved. But what is grace? It's not just an act of love. It's an act of self-giving love for someone who deserves the opposite. And there's one pretty incredible description of his grace here, isn't there? In verse 7, I love it so much. He says that he's done all this to show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And that's mind-blowing when you think about it, that here God, whose riches are immeasurable, meaning you can't measure them, he, this one who shaped you and made you and knows precisely how to make you happier than you've ever been. The one who could create the universe with his voice and did. He wants to display those immeasurable riches of grace by showing kindness to you in Christ. In the coming ages, it says, meaning eternity. At the end of uh, the TV show, The Good Place, the characters arrive in a godless, secular version of heaven, only to find it a kind of hell because everyone is bored out of their mind. And, and they, so they come up with a way to make it better, right? So they give people a way out. For after enjoying it as long as they want, they can simply be annihilated and walk into nothingness. This is how the spiritually dead conceive of heaven because they can't taste and see and know this truth, that the God of galaxies and of atoms, the author of life and love and light and tickle fights and honey butter and friendship and imagination and autumn and, and trees and hugs and harmony and song and the Grand Canyon and puppies and providence and miracles and the cross and the empty tomb. This infinitely creative and good and loving God whose riches of glory are immeasurable, who made you and will remake you, wants to make it his aim to glorify himself by making you happy in him forever. And he will not fail. God's grace is incredible. And this should fill us and humble us with abounding hope. Should awe us. Not only because of how rich it is, but also because of how free it is. He calls it a gift in verse 8. Not your own doing. Not a result of works or deeds. A gift. A free gift. Now this is stunning and wonderful, but it is also humbling. And, and this can be seen if we think of it as a handout. 
Many in our culture bristle at the thought of receiving a handout, saying, I don't need your charity or pity. But no Christian can say that to God. That is what grace is. And until we are humble to see grace as glorious, we remain dead in our sin. And this is how the author Brennan Manning talked about grace in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel. I know I sometimes read too long of quotes, but it's just so good I have to. And so to set the context for this quote, he begins by making reference to a famous short story by Flannery O'Connor in which a proud, self-righteous Christian is humbled by God with a vision of all the kinds of people she normally looks down on leading a procession to heaven while people like her are in the back. And Manning says of this powerful image, the hookers and swindlers enter before us because they know they cannot save themselves, that they cannot make themselves presentable or lovable. They risked everything on Jesus and knowing they didn't have it all together, were not too proud to accept the handout of amazing grace. Maybe this is the heart of our hangup the root of our dilemma. We fluctuate between castigating ourselves and congratulating ourselves because we're deluded into thinking we save ourselves. Either our halo gets too tight and a carefully disguised attitude of moral superiority results, or we are appalled at our inconsistency and devastated that we haven't lived up to the lofty expectations we have for ourselves. And so the roller coaster ride of elation and depression continues. Why? Because we never lay hold of our nothingness before God. And consequently, we never enter into the deepest reality of our relationship with him. But when we accept ownership of our powerlessness and helplessness, when we acknowledge that we are paupers at the door of God's mercy, then he can make something beautiful out of us. I think Manning is trying to get us to see the same thing Paul is. That grace is astonishingly glorious if we are humble enough to see it. If we really grasp the reality of the situation rather than deluding ourselves. Because inherent in the giving of grace is the message that we can't do it ourselves. That we need it. The very intention of it being a gift, it says in this verse, in verse 9, so that no one may boast. We love to boast. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And that is why grace leads to faith as the only means by which we are united to Christ. Because faith is the only suitable mechanism for grafting us into the vine of Christ. Because it's the humble disposition of trusting him to do what we know we cannot do. To be what we know we can't be. I may have told you this story before, I don't know, but it made such an impact on me that several years ago, I was talking with one of my friends at dinner about the gospel and, and, uh, and some of my friends, and one of them, a skeptic, said that if heaven and hell exist, then whether or not you go to heaven should be based on how you live and, not what, you, and what you do, you know, not on what you believe about things. He said that belief is the determining, as the determining factor seems arbitrary, meaning kind of random or, or nonsensical. And the reason I've never forgotten this is because it is such a good and fair objection for someone who doesn't yet fully grasp the gospel of grace. Why would faith be the means to salvation? And it made me think about that really clearly and deliberately in a way I hadn't before. And this is what Paul is reminding us of in this passage. That that person I was talking with, he overestimates human ability and underestimates the condition in sin before holy God. Why couldn't 
Morgan climb out of that dumpster? Why did she need someone to get her? The reality is it's simply impossible for anything other than faith to be the means of salvation because faith is the desperate, because, because of the desperate depth of our condition. Trying to earn salvation by another route is like flapping your arms and trying to fly back up as you fall off a cliff while faith is reaching out and grabbing a branch. You wouldn't say, why do I have to grab onto something? That's so arbitrary. Why can't I just fly back up there myself? Well, you could, if you could, but you can't. You don't have the ability. And when we really see the reality of the situation and the nature of our salvation, we see faith is far from arbitrary. It's chosen by God precisely because it's the one thing that relies on God's merit rather than our own. It's clinging to the one who, has, who actually has the power to save. Salvation by faith is why Christianity is unique in its ability to have hope and offer hope for the hopeless, for losers and failures. All other worldviews and religions and philosophies will say, live right, do these certain things, don't do these others, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, jump through these hoops, and that all sounds great to the prideful and the self-righteous and those who feel like they have it all together, but what about those who don't have it all together? What about those who've tried and failed? Those who are weak and weary and wounded. Those who are lost and can't seem to find their way. Those who are burdened by guilt and incapable of climbing their way out of the hole they've dug themselves into. Like those who, are, who have lived so long in their failure on earth is, that their life left here is too short to make up for it. By the, even by the world standards, like the thief on the cross beside our Lord. No other worldview has any hope to offer these people. What can they say? Just do your best. Just do it. Just be better. I don't know what else to say. Christ alone offers hope to these people. He offers himself. And God's grace opens our eyes to see that we are all that type of person. The desperate, the needy, so that through faith we depend on Christ for life. Faith grafts us into the vine of Christ. But this vine is so rich and full of nourishing sap that it produces abundant fruit in our lives. And that's what we see next, that faith leads to good works. Look at verses 9 and 10. Not a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And the order of this chain is extremely important, friends. God's love leads to God's grace, which leads to faith and faith leads to good works. Remember the vine and branches analogy. Good works are the fruit produced from the, 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 the branch abiding in the vine. And so it may seem obvious to point this out, but branches do not depend on their fruit to be attached to the vine. Rather, fruit is a byproduct of being attached to the vine. So your good works do not make you a Christian. Rather, you are changed to live out good works because you have been united to Christ Amen. by grace through faith. But make no mistake, 
Being truly united to Christ will truly change you. Not all at once, that comes later. But these good works are so vital to our new life that the text says it is a part of the reason we were created in Christ. We are created in Christ for good works, it says. One of the incredible, humbling, beautiful realities of Christianity is that Christ takes broken, sinful, dead souls and he unites them with himself so that they can be his holy hands and feet on earth. We do not deserve such a privilege to loving one another in him. And, and grace even changes our perspective on these good works. The text tells us that each one of them is prepared beforehand by God. We need to see our life of obedience as living out the glorious story arc the author has written for us. As Christians, all true Christians long for him to be glorified by our lives. Not for us to be glorified by our lives, him to be glorified. And that means he's the skillful artist and author. As Paul said elsewhere, he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. He begins it and completes it. Our salvation and the fruit of it is all God's work. We are his workmanship, it says. His work of art the display of his glorious grace in Christ Jesus. Our salvation is incredible. It is a personal union with the Savior. It's a drastic change from life to death. And it is because of God, God's love, his great love with which he loved us. It is by his grace and through faith and for good works. And I pray that you let this great salvation stir you and move you and change you. And I pray that if you do not know this salvation, that you cry out to Christ to bring you to himself. The fact that you wanted it all right now may already be evidence of God's grace moving you from death to life. Lay hold of him in faith and he will never let you go. Amen. And he will have a good and new path prepared for you to walk in. Let's pray. Holy Father, first and foremost, we want to thank you for rescuing us, for saving us, for loving us and making us alive together with Christ. I pray you make us remember these truths. Awe us with your riches of mercy and grace. Lead us even this day into those good works which you have prepared beforehand for us to walk in, that we may be living testimonies of your grace. We pray with Jesus. Amen.